And we got both YouTube and Facebook working properly today. Yesterday paid off after all. We had a, had a little time here in the church while Sergio was fixing things, and it looks like everything's working fine. Let's see. We're in uh, today is, I don't know, you know what day? Fifth today? Today is the fifth. All right. Let's see what we have to do. 5 November, the God who controls the winds controls the nations. In the 17th century, the decades of the 1660s and through the 1680s were tough times for God's people in England and Scotland. After the ascendancy of the Puritans to political power during the English Civil Wars of the 1640s and the execution of King Charles I, Oliver Cromwell, a Puritan independent or Congregationalist, set up a commonwealth with himself at its head. He took the title of Lord Protector, which he held until his death in 1658. His son Richard succeeded him as Protector for one year before he resigned. During Cromwell's rule, the Puritans experienced the peak of their political power and enjoyed religious freedom. <clears throat> the Presbyterians, who controlled the English Parliament, were no fans of the Cromwells. Therefore, in 1660, Parliament invited Charles II the second son and successor of Charles I, to the throne. They were no doubt influenced by the fact that 10 years earlier, Charles II had become a Presbyterian in order to encourage Scottish support for his recovery of the throne. But Charles II turned out to be no friend of God's people. Under the Act of Uniformity of 1662, all ministers were given a deadline by which they had to give their public support of the Anglican Prayer Book, and were required to receive the Episcopal ordination if they had not yet been so ordained. This resulted in the Great Ejection, in which about 2,000 Presbyterian, Independent, and Baptist pastors were forced from their churches. The Five Mile Act of 1665 forbid non-Anglican ministers from coming within five miles of any British city or town. Wow, that's rough. Finally, on his deathbed in 1685, Charles II publicly acknowledged his conversion to Roman Catholicism, which he had kept secret for years. This explained his animosity towards the Presbyterians who had brought him to the throne. <clears throat> Charles II was succeeded by James II, another Roman Catholic. James II intensified the persecution of the Scottish Covenanters, who resisted the Episcopal form of government being forced upon the Church of Scotland. Many devout Presbyterians lost their lives. Since James II had pushed for a Catholic succession, the birth of his son brought the issue to a crisis. His daughter Mary had, his daughter Mary had married William of Orange, who himself had strong claims to the throne of England. William, born in The Hague and raised as a follower of John Calvin, had become head of the state of the Netherlands. 
<clears throat> the thought of James' Catholic son as heir to the throne was too much for the Protestant nobles of England, and they invited William and Mary to take the throne. On November 1, 1688, William set out with his navy across the English Channel to intending to invade England. The wind that propelled William's fleet was so strong that it kept many English ships imprisoned in the Thames River, unable to sail into the Channel to attack William. As William's fleet sailed along the English coast, martial music blared from the decks and the lights st stretching from stem to stern on each ship blazed through the evening sky. It was a stirring spectacle to the beleaguered Protestants of England. On November 5th, 1688, William's fleet landed on English soil, and William of Orange and his troops began what has been known as the Glorious Revolution, kind of thinking about what's going on in the country right now while I'm reading this. James II fled to France the next month as the Protestants of England celebrated Christmas worshiping as they wished. James attended Mass in France. God used the wind to keep England a Protestant nation. <clears throat> have you seen God use the forces of nature to accomplish his purposes in your life? I have personally. Has a storm or other natural disaster prevented you from doing something or going somewhere? Perhaps afterward you could see God's hand in it. Sometimes it is difficult to understand why certain things happen, but we can find comfort in knowing that God is in control of all things. Our faith is in a God who is not only who not only created the winds, but also controls them to achieve his purposes. Our God is an awesome God. And Mark 4.41 says, Who is this man that even the wind and waves obey him? All right, now we got some prayer requests here before we get started. I want to bring up, I haven't done this for a while. I had it under three pieces of paper, and I realized we haven't prayed for all of the people who have unsaved in their families. So we're going to include all of these people, not by name, but uh, that list of people that we have for the unsaved. And we'll pray that some of them will come to a saving knowledge of Christ really soon. And then we have Ken Mansfield has serious heart problems. Uh, let's see, he can have it treated with medicine, but it's going to be for the rest of his life. Uh, his daughter, Holly, already has a full plate, and now she has this added in, and uh, so it's, it's a little stressful on the family there. Jim Jones is struggling with colon cancer and is in the Church of Christ, which you never know if somebody is saved in the Church of Christ or not, because they, they border really right on a cult. They, they've got some very poor doctrine there. Um, <clears throat> baby Easton, who I brought up week after week, has just gone through a life of difficulty since it was born and he was born, and uh, today I got a good report. Things are really starting to pick up for this child, and I'm happy to report that, but we want to keep him in prayer. And then John Mead, some of you might see Elaine posting on uh, Facebook, or uh, she died yesterday, and John lost his wife, and so my heart goes out to him. And then... Uh, we have Greg and Andy who attend here, and Greg is confirmed to have coronavirus. He, he's better now, but boy, he had a very high temperature and was miserable. And uh, Andy has got these symptoms, and so she may have it, but she doesn't think it's as bad as him, but we'll keep them in prayer. And then uh, Ryan, oh gosh, just today, poor Ryan up in, up in Canada had all of his upper teeth removed, so he's going to be miserable for a couple days. But in the end, it'll be better. He'll have a nice smile. And, you know, I wear one of those mouth guards every day because I grind my, I, I don't grind. I clench my teeth when I sleep. 
and I pushed them all up through my jawbone. And so I have to wear that forever, but he'll be taking out his teeth and putting them in the same stuff I put my mouth guard in every day, but <laughs> whatever. And then uh, Jan Bo is, uh, uh, Mike emailed me, he emails about his mom. She's had all kinds of problems and she has uh, got some things going on today and he asked for some prayers with that. And then finally, Tony Decker out in Washington has uh, <clears throat> a neck surgery yesterday and I don't think he's home yet. I haven't seen any posts to say he is. So. Uh, uh, he had it before and something didn't work and so he's back in there and and uh, so we'll have all those people in prayer and then we'll get started. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to uh, come into your presence and to uh, just worship you for who you are and we're so thankful. You know, we've lost our dear sister and poor John has lost his wife and it's only a loss for us and it's only temporary because we know Christ has got uh, all of these things taken care of for the redeemed. And uh, there is a day when we're all going to be back together again. So at the same time as we go through mourning of losing a person, missing a person that we have lost, that uh, we also can rejoice that she knew you, that she knows you, and she is in your presence forevermore, safe in your, your hand. And Lord, we pray for all of the other people, the unsaved, as well as the physical ailments and uh, the trials that the family members will have to pick up <clears throat> because of these things. And Lord, we just pray for each one of them. And we also pray for this class. We pray that it would be handled properly and that nothing would be said that is incorrect. But Lord, if there's something that is taught which is incorrect, that you would alert us to that, or at least alert it to the people that hear this so that they wouldn't have that in their minds and be led astray by something like that. Lord, we pray these things that you will be glorified, and we certainly pray them that we will be built up in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> and of course, I drank water, which I hate to do, but I've been working all day, and I haven't drank any water all day, so I drank some when I got here, and now I'm, I can't, it always makes me, I don't know what it is about water, but it makes me not even be able to talk sometimes. Um, we are in the book of Galatians. I know we we're just uh, been prodding, prodding along through that for a while, and uh, we're just uh, more than halfway through now, and that's a shame because I love this book. I could just do this and then go and start all over again. This is just this is the book that if somebody says, what's your favorite book of the Bible? I always say one of the 66, but this one really is the special spot for me. I just, I absolutely love the book of Galatians. It's freedom, freedom in Christ. It's, you know, we're, we're free from the bondage of the law. Everything is analytical with them in this book. There's not a lot of emotion. Well, there's not a lot of emotion as far as there is towards the people he's writing to, but um, not his personal emotion. And uh, it, it's just very straightforward. I just love the way that, it, that it's written and presented. But we're in Galatians 4, verse 11 today. And Jim, you can start wherever you want. Yeah, go back. Dr. McGee always said that my favorite book is the one I'm in right the now. The one I'm in right now. That's the way I feel. That's exactly how I feel. The one I'm in right now. Yeah. I'll back it up to eight. Eight. So that we can uh, get uh, back into the groove here. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. But... Now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Eleven. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. 
Okay, it's exactly the same, just different wording. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. So there you go. A little more formal English. I have, I have, I am afraid of you. I am afraid of you. That's no good. That's that. That's not even the intent at all. What version are you reading? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, that's no good. Scratch that. Okay, here we go. Um, you know, I hate to admit this, but I, I do every day an evaluation of uh, one verse of the Bible, and then every week I do the, uh, 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 you know, the sermon, and we go from five up to maybe 12 verses, and uh, there is very rarely a verse that I don't find an error in it. I hate to say that, in but, the, oh yeah, in the, what? in the King James Version. There we go. It's, I, say that. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's what? Well, no, it's, it's, that belongs in there, I'm certain, yeah. but it just, it's, it's it, it, not what people claim it is by any way, shape, or form, and I document every one of them, and I'm up to about a thousand or more, and these are actual, you know, translational errors. They're not, they're not, you know, I mean, and I take it personally. I mean, when I say a translational error, it'll, there are things that almost no Bible will include in there, like a definite article before we talked about one yeah. last Sunday, the grace and the mercy, and everybody says grace and mercy. But those articles are there for a reason. They're there for an actual reason. And so I count that as an error in any Bible. You know, if Young's literal translation is usually the only one that includes those. And when you read his, it's like opening up a flower. It's amazing. It is such a, but it's a very hard book to read. If you've ever picked up Young's literal translation of the Bible, it's old English, but it's real formal too. I mean, it's just Every single thing that it says, he translates, and it's very rare that he doesn't translate precisely. I, it's, he just does a great job. Anyway, we'll get into 4.11. <clears throat> Paul's words of this verse are a pitiful cry from a disturbed heart, something which has been echoed countless times since by faithful pastors and teachers around the world. Martin Luther goes so far as to say these words of Paul breathe tears which is correct. And I know if I cite Martin Luther, somebody emails me and says, why are you citing him? He has bad doctrine. And I don't, you know, I don't care. People can be correct and still have bad doctrine. And people can have great doctrine and be wrong. You know, if something is true, you cite it. I've cited John Calvin before because he's had some insightful things. But then when you get into his doctrine, it's usually uh, quite wrong in areas. So did that willfully. What's that? I did that willfully. I always do it willfully. If somebody says something that's profound, I, yeah, very good. <laughs> okay. Um, he had labored for the church at Galatia. This is uh, Paul laboring for his people in Galatia, bringing them to Christ and then instructing them, them about their new life in Christ. And everything he says, he takes back to when he brought them into the faith. Everything he says. And it's like, why can't you understand this? And you can do this with somebody today, to this day. If you go to somebody that was saved in the Hebrew Roots Movement, they are now in the Hebrew Roots Movement, but they were saved in a, a regular church, and you say, did you receive Christ by the deeds of the law, or did you receive him by faith? And they'll say, well, it was by faith. And then you say, well, what are you doing going back to the law of Moses then? And this is exactly what Paul does, and you can do exactly the same thing right to them. Just take Paul's words and amend them for them, and it's like it goes right over their head. They, they, it, it, that's what happens when it's called cognitive dissonance. When you hear something that you disagree with, it doesn't matter how correct it is, you will turn it off. And we're seeing that in America right now. That we're seeing it. Half of America has got a state of cognitive dissonance, and they just shut off because they don't want to know the truth. They, or even if they do, 
they will deny that they care about it, which we even see in the, the news media. They know these things are wrong and they'll admit it and they'll say, but I don't care because they have cognitive dissonance. Anyway, we'll get off of that and we'll get back into what he was saying. However, the Judaizers, Paul instructed them in a new life in Christ, and then the Judaizers had crept in and stolen the hearts of the Galatians away from that simple, beautiful gospel message. This sad note from Paul says nothing about salvation. That is a done deal for those who have received Christ, and that's what I say week after week. If you are somebody that is saved, and you go into a Hebrew Roots Movement church or a Jehovah's Witnesses church or anywhere else, you are not going to lose your salvation. But your family, who is dependent on you for hearing the word of God, cannot be saved because they are now receiving a false gospel. And that's the difference between bad doctrine and a heresy. When somebody receives something and they go into it, they're assimilating that into them, but they teach it. If it's just bad doctrine, it's not going to keep them from being saved. They're just going to have a poor walk with the Lord. You go to a Calvinist church or a Arminian church and you'll receive doctrine which may not be correct. You are saved and you're just going to have a funny walk with the Lord. But if you are in a church that is teaching a heresy, the Hebrew Roots Movement says that you need to go back and observe the law of Moses. Those people that are not yet saved will never be saved because they are trusting in deeds of the law in order to be saved. And this is really that important. So uh, a sad note from Paul says nothing about their salvation. I should say that that is a done deal for those who have received Christ but it says something about those who follow. And that's why Paul is so very careful with this, and he is going to continue to be careful with this in that exact vein of thought as we go into chapters 5 and 6. Rather, this letter here that he's writing speaks of right doctrine and holding steadfastly to the soundness of that doctrine. If one turns from the truth of the gospel, they will only find themselves stuck in bondage. And those who follow after them will never, here it is, come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Paul's heart was tied up in what was occurring in Galatia. And he almost felt helpless concerning the situation. Why don't you guys remind me to do well, one of I was waiting for you to slow uh, Well, you know, once, I, uh, I, 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 once you have something and you don't have it, then you really need it. Let me put this down here now. I, I, I just can't believe that I'm working without this thing. This makes life... Burke bought this for me a while ago. It's the most wonderful thing. And every week I forget to put it in my... Well, I'm talking to the new people that are here. Uh, they can't see it on the screen, but that's okay. They can here. So anyway, uh, he got me this thing, and it's so wonderful. And I always fail to put it in my lab. So anyway, um, where we go? Okay, it'll keep him from being saved by Christ. Paul's very heart was tied up in what was occurring in Galatia. That's his church. He established it, and he felt almost helpless concerning the situation. If they didn't see the reason, all of his efforts would have been, as he says, in vain. However, those in Galatia were not the only ones that Paul stressed over. Like a father tending to his children, he felt the same concerning his other churches. Two prominent examples. One comes from Philippians chapter 2. He says, let me see, where is that? That's 14 through 16. And let's see what he says there. Philippians, if anybody gets there first, just start reading, but you read really loud. Ephesians. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Ephesians or Philippians? Philippians 2, 14 through 16. You gotta. Okay. Yeah. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. 
holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Okay, see, he's worried about, you know, what he has done, and he does not want that to be, uh, uh, you know... Uh, hindrance to them in their walk. He's trying his very best. The other one is in 1, uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. I mean, he stressed over these things, and that's good because, it, well, I just keep the personal examples out, but I feel exactly the same way. You stress over people that attend church and then... The next thing you know, they're out doing something that is, I hate to say it, but literally crazy. It has nothing to do with, you know, a walk with Christ. And you think, what are you doing? You know, you could imagine some of the things people get into. I mean, there's just all kinds of things that people offer you in the world today. And, oh, I'm going to go do that. And you think, what, are you? you know, I'm not talking about going to a rock concert. You know, if you grew up with Journey, you go see Journey, whatever. I mean, it just that doesn't bother me. It's just music. But my goodness, there are certain things that people get into that are, you know, I'm talking about spiritual things. I'm going to go, I'll give you an example. On Stickney Point Road, we now have, and I have to pass it every single day for the rest of my life when I leave the island, is a psychic. Right? Uh -oh. Stevens and Salt building. Right? in your old building. She retired from that building and they've turned it into a psychic. And, you know, imagine, and this is the kind of thing that I will get an email or a call from. Oh, I'm going to go see my psychic today. And this is somebody that's been attending church for like 20 years. And I'm like, are you insane? You know, whatever. I got a sister in Christ saying that black lives matter, then eternal lives matter. Yeah, oh, we got that last weekend. It just doesn't make it. People think things that are just, anyway, I don't want to get too down on people, but you have to wonder what they're thinking. Yeah. Anyway, any decent, caring pastor will agonize over the loss of... Now, remember, when I typed this, I was not a pastor. This is probably a 15-year-old commentary or whatever. Maybe it's 10. But I was saying this not because I was trying to say something about myself. I was saying this long before I knew that I would be a pastor of a church. So anyway, any decent, caring pastor will agonize over the loss of any of his flock to bad doctrine. He will shake his head and ask, how could this have happened? Even if much effort is placed in the training of his flock, the weakness in some individuals cries out for bondage. They literally need bondage. We see that, you see it in politics, you see it in marriages, you see it in family units, in, it, in a work environments. Some people want to be in bondage. They need to be in bondage. And that's why things like Hebrew Roots Movement and Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, they're, they're so effective. Look at Scientology. Remember, I've said this before, but the inventor of Scientology, anybody know his name? I don't remember. L. Ron Hubbard. Okay, L. Ron Hubbard. Once you get the L out, everybody remembers. Okay, this guy was the most prolific author in human history. He'd written more books than any person ever, and he said, well, yeah, comic books, it doesn't matter. He wrote comic books. He wrote more than anybody else in history, and he said, I am tired of writing for a penny a word. He said, religion is where the big money is. And he invented Scientology. And people knowing that, they know that quote, they know his foundings, and yet they go there. They need to be in bondage. I don't care how cool, what's his name that does all the um, uh, the movies? Um, Tom, Cruise. Tom Cruise. I don't care how cool he seems in the movies. That guy needs to be in bondage. He needs his life to be controlled because 
If he didn't, he wouldn't be in Scientology. He'd be in free Christ. But I'm telling you that people that are in that kind of stuff need, they have a need in them. And this is what Paul is telling them. And this is what I'm evaluating from Paul's words. They would, I'll read it again. Even if much effort is placed in the training of his flock, the weakness in some individuals cries out for bondage and someone to control them. They would rather be in chains to the law or chains to Scientology or chains to an abusive wife or husband and under the harsh thumb of legalists than to live freely in the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why, you know, the gospel message, you're saved by grace through faith. You don't need to do anything. You just need to believe. And you would wonder why anybody would come back to church after that. I'm saved. I'm free. But, you know, to me, the more that you come back to church, the more you hear that message. And when you don't hear it anymore, your life goes downhill and you forget you were saved. 2 Peter 1 9. So it's a good thing that people come back to church, but it's it's wonderful to have the freedom in Christ to say, there's nothing I need in this world. Literally, there's nothing I need in this world except Jesus. And I didn't mean to say people shouldn't come back. That's not what I was trying to say. I was saying that you have freedom in Christ. Yeah. So anyway, um, they would rather be in chains to the law and under the harsh thumb of legalists than to live freely in the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. And we have a life application and if you have a pastor who truly cares about the doctrine you accept, you should be grateful for that. And also understand that he probably spends much time in anguish over you when you suffer through ills, trials, or even the self-inflicted wounds of bad doctrine. And once again, I didn't type this for myself. I typed this long ago. But I, I would have to go back and look at when I typed this. You know, if somebody says, can you prove that? I don't know. Maybe I was a out on the church on the beach or something by then. I don't know, but I never considered myself a pastor there. And even here, I don't tell people I'm a pastor. If somebody says, what do you do? I say, I'm a preacher. I never say pastor because it's just not my thing. You know, I mean, I, I don't feel qualified to be a pastor, I, but I love to preach. That's where my heart is. So anyway, um, if somebody says, Pastor Charlie, I try to say, just say Charlie. You know, it's <laughs> just Charlie. Anyway, um, we're in 412. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. Okay, this one says you have not injured me at all. So other than that, it's identical. Okay, there are a multitude of interpretations of what Paul is stating here. And we see this from time to time. You get a verse that is so simple that you think, oh, I just read through it and you're done. And then you go read scholars' comments on it, and you can have 20 scholars, and they say 20 different things. It really is amazing. I don't know if this is one of them, but it, there are at least a multitude of different interpretations. But it really shouldn't be that confusing. He is a Jew, and he has been telling the Galatians that the law cannot save anyone. Instead, he gave several logical reasons why the law was introduced. All right? Remember, we talked about some of them. I think I'll mention one on Sundays. Uh, the law was to show how utterly sinful sin is. The law is to um, uh, show us that no man can meet its uh, the righteousness through the law. And all of these things are a make a you no. Know, that's shadow. It's a it's an instructor. A tutor. Tutor. Thank you. They all these are a they're a tutor. That's right. A pedagogue. They're leading us to an understanding that we need. Jesus Christ. The law just simply grabs you by the hand and says, come with me. I'm going to show you why you can't do these things and why you need Jesus so badly. Okay. But he's given these logical reasons why the law is introduced. And then he went on to show that its purpose has been served. I mean, it's done and it was nullified through the work of Christ. He understood this and he gave up on the law as a means of obtaining righteousness. Paul 
understood it, and he gave up that avenue of obtaining righteousness when he was a Pharisee. He's a guy that that's all he did was say, I'm going to become more and more righteous by observing the law. And there's a point where I'm going to obtain such righteousness that everybody else is going to be below me. And I'm on the big, you know, the peak of this mountain of people standing before God being praised. That's what the law does. It makes you think I'm the one that is the center of all of God's attention. And everybody else is looking up at awe in me. And it doesn't work that way. Paul, had understood these things about the nature of the law, that it was simply a tutor, and I'll read it again, he had given up on the laws of, of meaning as a means of obtaining righteousness and being justified before God. And he is now asking them to do the same. You were saved by grace through faith. You didn't have the Spirit. You believed and you got the Spirit. Why do you need to go and obtain any righteousness from the law? Doesn't that cross mean anything to you? This is what he's trying to do. All right, brethren, his word brethren means that they are, in fact, brethren. He's not saying you're not saved, you've lost your salvation or anything like that. They are brethren. They have not lost their salvation if they were saved, but they sure will lose their joy as they live out their lives in bondage under the law. Further, those who come after them will never come to a saving knowledge of Christ because they will be trained in works and not in faith. That's what we talked about a minute ago, and here I had to just read my commentaries and stop adding in my own thoughts, but I guess a little repetition is a good thing. Plus, it's not a bad thing to repeat yourself. <clears throat> I urge you to become like me, Paul is shouting out to them. I gave up on the law. I counted my Jewishness as nothing. My life as a Pharisee seeking righteousness under the law is now behind me. I live for Christ and place my life and my faith in his capable hands alone. That's Charlie Garrett paraphrase of this verse here, okay? This is what he's trying to tell them, is that everything that I was, and he's already explained this, and he's going to continue to explain it to him, everything I was, it means nothing. It means literally nothing compared to what I am seeking and gaining in my knowledge of Jesus Christ. Why don't you follow me in that? He said the next words, for I became like you, Paul had given up all of those things he once boasted in, all of them. Instead, he notes that I took up life with the Gentiles and have lived as one not under the law. I showed you that through faith in what Jesus did, you are reconciled to God. As I was like you, then why would you try to change from that now? You received the Spirit in the condition that you were in as a Gentile. Be pleased to live your life as one now. I hate to say this, and you know, I'm certainly going to get somebody that's upset that I say this, but you can usually tell somebody that is caught in Hebrew Roots Movement, if they're on a Facebook profile, and you can just see that the way they structure their homepage and the, maybe a little title under their name or something, it's not to badger people, but if they think they're getting closer to God by, by doing things like this, they're not. And if they think they're getting closer to God by saying, well, I'm having my Sabbath today on Saturday, they're not. The only thing they're doing is disgracing the cross of Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong, as Paul said in Romans 14, 5, that one day one person esteems one day above another, and another person esteems all days the same. Let every man be, uh, you know, yeah, convinced in his own mind. But, but when you say that I am observing the Sabbath in order to be pleasing to God, or when you do it in a way that makes others look like they are doing wrong, you have now fallen into error. There is a difference. I don't care what day of the week somebody celebrates. They can Jewish people, they're Jewish. They meet on Saturday. They do it to this day. Even Messianic synagogues in 
in uh, Israel or around the world, they're Jewish. That's their day off. It's always been their day off. It's a cultural thing. I've been in uh, countries around the world where people take Fridays right. off. Yeah, okay, she knows what I'm talking about. If one of those people comes to Christ and they leave that religion that they're in, why would they change their day off? They've been taking the same day off their whole life. Their whole country is off that day. Why would they, I become a Christian, I got to start worshiping on Sunday. Why would they do that? You know, you might as well live out your life in a way that is accommodating with you and where you can enjoy yourself and fellowship with people that maybe don't know the Lord and you can tell them about him, right? But people get stuck on things and they start making things up in their head and then they start putting these constraints and demands on themselves and then that extends to people beyond themselves. And when that happens, that becomes error. So as Paul said, let everybody be convinced in his own mind. You don't need to push your your. I got to go to church Sunday night, and I've got to go to church Sunday uh, Sunday morning and Sunday night, and then I've got to go to church on Wednesday. And if you're not doing that, you're not a good Christian, because I know people that will tell you that. Jack Van Jack Van Impey used to teach that. I don't know if he's still is he still alive. No, okay, he died, but he used to say that. I heard him years ago, and I was like, "What's he talking about? You have to go to church on Wednesday. Haven't you read the Bible even once?" And he knew the Bible. I mean, he'd quote scripture better than anybody I've ever seen quote scripture, but it seemed like he passed over these simple things. He was brought up going on Wednesday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. Fine. Don't push it on other people and don't make them feel bad if you're not doing that same thing. That's not the way to handle it, according to what Paul says. So enough of that. Um, I urge you to be like me. He's shouting up to them these things, for I became like you. Paul had given up all of those things he once boasted in. Instead, I think I've already, yes, I've already read that one too. You received the spirit and the condition you were in as a Gentile. Be pleased to live your life as one now. In his next words, you have not injured me at all. Of this clause, Vincent's word studies notes, this translation misses the force of the aorist. Aorist means that it happened in a certain point in time, okay, and conveys a wrong impression that Paul, up to this time, had received no wrong at the hands of the Galatians. That was not true. This is Vincent's word studies speaking. The reference is to his earlier relations with the Galatians and is explained by Galatians 4.13. Galatians 4.14. Render, ye did not injure me at all. Ye did not injure me then, do not do so now. In other words, ye didn't hurt me at all. Please, you didn't injure me back then. Don't do it to me now. So that's Vincent's word study, so you get a sense of what is being conveyed. Paul is telling them that by placing themselves under the law, it would become a source of true pain for them. He is asking them not to do this insane thing and to take on the yoke of bondage, which Christ had paid the price to remove. You have something? No, okay. Life application. If Christ fulfilled the law, and he did, paying its price in full, then our taking on the law can only be now a giant affront to him. It is saying, I don't trust what you did was sufficient to me. I will establish my own righteousness apart from your work. I don't need what you offer. What a slap in the face of the Lord. Or it could be a little less force, and it could be, yes, you did a great thing, and I thank you for that, but I'm going to help and do more. So it could be either what you did is insufficient for me, or it could be that I just don't trust you. Either way, it comes down to a lack of faith in what Christ did. And it also comes out to a complete lack of understanding of the words that Jesus said on the cross. 
It is finished. Thank you. It is finished. I mean, when he said it was finished, he didn't say it was finished, but this and this and this, and you need to do those things, but everything else is done for you. He didn't do that. He said, it is finished. I read these last week. I want to see if anybody can remember where they are. Don't, don't open anything up yet. What are the verses in Hebrews that say that the law is done? I read them every single sermon before the Leviticus 23 sermons. What's that? Seven, yes. Right chapter? No. 18, 7, 18. I didn't open anything. It was written here oh. last week. Oh, okay. He's got it written there. Okay, then the next one. The next one is, turn one page to eight. Begins with a one and ends with a three. Anybody? 813. Good. Hey, that was great. And then the last one is Hebrews 10, verse. Come on. You just said it. 10, verse. Nine. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So remember those. You got Hebrews 7, 18, 8, 13, and 10, 9. The law is annulled. It is obsolete. It is set aside. Okay. And then Paul says it in Colossians chapter, that's right, 2, 14. He said uh, uh, the law is nailed to the cross. And obviously, as I said, I just typed this in uh, Revelation commentary coming up in another week, that nobody went up to the cross and nailed a copy of the law to the cross. It, the symbolism is that Christ embodies the law, and he was nailed to the cross. And what did Christ do on the cross? He died. That's right. The law died, okay? The law went into the grave. The law that brings about sin, it went into the grave with all of our sin. He came out of the grave embodying the law, but our sin is there forever. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, we are no longer imputed sin because we are under a new covenant, okay? If we can just remember that, if... I know that people struggle and stress over their relationship with Jesus, but if you just, and I'm talking about people that do things that they feel, I, I can't believe the Lord would still save me, okay? I've got a friend like that, and I told him, I feel exactly the same way. I get really upset, you know, and I yell at he, and I think, how can you love me, Lord? I got the most wonderful wife on the face of the planet, and, you know, she comes home, I haven't eaten since three o'clock in the morning because I've been typing a sermon and it's six o'clock. She's supposed to be off at 3.30 and she didn't stop to buy dinner. And so I got to wait another hour to eat and I get angry and I'm just going to go eat some peanuts or something. I'm just, uh, it, you know, I don't mean to be upset, but I, I get upset. And then I just lay there and I think, how could you love me? I got the most wonderful woman and I got this bitterness in my heart at her and you died for me and all the things I've done, you know, you, you, if you just keep that in perspective and keep telling yourself, he's done it. He loves us enough to forgive us. Just you, you put away all, you know, R.C. Sproul said something one time that was really, really well stated. He said this uh, lady uh, uh, kept saying, she'd come up to him, she said, I just, I don't think Christ has forgiven me. I, I just don't think that I'm saved. I don't think that that uh, he's forgiven me for my past. And finally said, you know, you're just so arrogant. <laughs> and she, she was horrified. He said, you're so arrogant. He died for every person's sin on this planet. And if you've received that, it's done. You're elevating yourself in your own misery above the cross of Christ. And I've never forgotten that. He's absolutely right. It's arrogance on my part to say, I can't believe that I'm still saved. Maybe that's not arrogance to say, maybe I'm not saved. To say, I can't believe I'm saved, maybe, you know, it's a little different I'm because I, it's true. But it was very well said, you know, to be 
brunt with somebody sometime may be the best thing. And I don't know if she ever came back to him or what, but he was right in what he said. If you've heard it enough and you keep telling him, your, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, there's a point where you have to just say, you know what? I can't help you anymore. He died for your sins. You're going to have to work this out with him. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, um, uh, Galatians, yeah, you didn't injure me at all. Um, I'll read that one more time. We'll get into life application. Wait, we're in 413, aren't we? Did we read that yet? Okay, no, we... we no, let's see. I, I just got done with... 412. So, okay, and I did. I, I read the life application, so now we need to get into 413. There you go. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Okay, this one says exactly the opposite. It was because of infirmity instead of illness, but it says that to you at the first. So instead of first to you, here it's you. So they get away with not plagiarizing by turning two words around. There's a point where... You know, you look at enough translations of the Bible. Like I say, you look at 27 of them for every verse that I do for the sermons. And you, you, you begin to see how people think. I can't copy this, but I need to say the same thing. You know, I, I'll turn things around or they'll change maybe an adverb into a whatever. And, and uh, which is incorrect because if it's an adjective in the Hebrew, you need to leave it as an adjective. Or if it's a noun, it's a noun. But you can see how people begin to think, I can't plagiarize. And, you know, so I have to change this a little, but I have to have the same intent if I'm going to have an honest translation. That's an important thing because your translation needs to be honest. It needs to be in line with what the Lord is saying. So anyway, 413, Paul now brings to memory the reason for his having preached the gospel to them at the first, as he says. His first visit is recorded in Acts 16, verse 6. I might as well take you there and read you that, whatever it says, Acts 16, 6. I didn't put it as a verse to read, but we'll see if if we can see what it says here. Whoops. Acts, there it is. 16 and verse 6 says, uh, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Okay, so that's their first visit. Okay, and a second visit was made in Acts 18 verse 23, which says, 18 verse 23, After he had spent some time there, which was in Caesarea, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order to strengthen all the, or in order, strengthening all the disciples. So that's what he was doing. He strengthened them. He's encouraging them. And it's probably about this time that he found out that they've fallen back under the Hebrew roots movement. The Judaizers are in there. Okay, 1823. His bringing up that first visit is his way of getting them to recall what it was like to have been brought into the body of Christ and the surrounding circumstances which occurred at that time. In doing this, he's trying to get them to see the contrast in how he handled things in comparison to how the Judaizers were handling them now. And you can do that if you want. You know, go attend a Hebrew Roots Church for a week and just see how they handle things. And I, I wouldn't recommend it because, you know, going to a bad church is all you're going to do is get that in your heads. But if you wanted, you know, you're visiting somewhere and you just say, I want to see, uh, there's somebody in here that I... See, every single week of my life, we do things together. And he had always seen these people in these charismatic churches getting slain in the spirit and, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. And he uh, said, I just want to know, if is it me or is that real? And so he went to one downtown on 12th Street. Okay, what is it? Fellowship of Believers. And they walked around. They slayed everybody in the spirit. And they got up to him. And nothing happened. They tried to push him over, and he left. He said, I guess it's not me after all. So 
You know, I mean, sometimes you just need to check something out. But uh, anyway, uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, I just I would rather be in a, a church where there's doctrine being preached properly. But like I said, sometimes you need to check things out. Okay, so um, uh, and so he first reminds them that they were fully aware of the fact that his preaching the gospel to them was because of physical infirmity. Scholars look to a host of possibilities as to what he means by this. I know we went through this in another uh, book, and we'll go through it here, and I think we'll go through it one or two more times because it's an interesting possibility. Some find it referring to the contemptible nature of his presence. He was not a skilled orator, and he was not flashy in the conduct of his life. Okay? In contrast, the Judaizers would be well-skilled in their presentation. Thus, they could compare themselves as superior to that wretched Paul. So some people think that that's his infirmity. Okay, but I could dismiss this without even making an argument because what was the guy's name in Acts that was a great orator? I'm trying to think of his name right now. Anyway, and he was a saved believer. And he went and he preached the gospel of Christ. But what's that? Apollos, thank you, Apollos. And so, uh, uh, you know, that's probably not the issue, but it could be, you know, people that have great oratory skills, if they're prideful in that, they will make other people look bad just because they're very good at what they do. But others see this as referring to his sufferings for the gospel in general. He was beaten, he was persecuted, he was maligned. This is what drove him into the area of Galatia and brought the gospel to them. Another scholar sees the infirmity not in Paul, but in Galatians, the Galatians. They knew nothing of the law or of Christ, and so Paul thus accommodated himself in preaching the gospel to them in a manner which they would understand. So he's putting the onus or the disability actually on the Galatians. His approach concerning salvation by grace through faith came in a simple and understandable form. In contrast would be the Judaizers who were forcing them back under the law. Okay, so you've got a contrast there. Another option is that Paul suffered an affliction in his body, which necessitated his stopping at Galatia to recover from it or to be assisted through it. This final thought seems the most likely based on the coming verses. They continue in this same line of reasoning, and so there, is, there seems to be no reason to suggest it is one of the other possibilities. Okay, and I will go through that. I, let me see if we're going to, yes, I think it's coming up very quickly. I'll go through that as to why, but for right now, there, those are some of the different scholarly opinions on why, you know, Paul was facing some infirmity and what that may be. <clears throat> okay, life application. Sometimes when we are helping a Christian who is struggling with turning to legalism, we may be able to take them back to their own beginnings with Christ. If we can get them to remember what their initial conversion was like, then they can begin to rightly process what it means to be saved. Too much head knowledge in one area may lead to legalism, and it can often overwhelm the truth of basic doctrines of Christ, such as salvation by grace through faith. Okay, and that's a point that, you know, I, I put that down as, as a, you know, a bad thing, and I agree with it wholeheartedly that it is, and the reason why is because it seems at times that the more I learn, and maybe other people feel the same way because we got a couple real scholarly people in here, but uh, the more I learn, the more I get consumed in what I've learned, and I kind of, I, I don't mean that I forget 
the grace, you know, it's there in my mind, but it becomes almost a means to an end is to learn more and to learn more. And it's like anything, you know, you can, you can get so far into doctrine and so far into being right about particular issues that you lose the right or the, the ability to be graceful to others the way that you received the grace that you received. And you can even forget the grace. And so it's something that I know I, I personally struggle with it. I just, I'm always thinking, I need to just keep it simple. I need to keep it simple. But sometimes it's hard because some issues in the Bible are so complicated that there's no way to express them except with a really long and complicated analysis. Uh, the book of Hebrews has got a couple verses like that, that they just need to be analyzed very uh, in depth. Right now, with the Revelation uh, Bible study we're doing, the commentary, the daily commentary I'm sending out. Okay, I do the analysis, and then at the bottom I have a life application. And you notice that, like right now, we're in Galatians, and the life application is like two sentences, maybe a paragraph. But in Revelation, it's, you know, sometimes longer than the analysis itself. And the reason why that is, and I don't know if I've explained this before, and nobody's asked me about it, but the reason why that is is because that's my first Revelation commentary from years and years and years ago. I wrote that commentary, and then, uh, you know, it was more from my heart. It was more like, this is, this is, you know, and so what I've done now is I've taken that commentary and made it the life application. And anything that is too repetitive of what I said above, I just delete it. So you've got, you know, you don't have a lot of repetition between the two. But that's why the life application is so long in the Revelation Revelation commentary is because it's just what, you know, before I just typed it more from my heart. I do a little bit of thinking about it. I type it up and I didn't do those early in the morning, I don't think. I don't remember when in the day I typed it, but now everything I type is like at three o'clock in the morning. There's no dogs barking. There's no birds singing. Everything is quiet, and I can I can sit there and I can do these commentaries without anything interrupting me, and that's a really nice feeling. So, so I can call you. Uh, yeah, you yeah. call me. Yeah, um, <laughs> thought about it. Yeah, you thought about it. Yeah, the only person I ever have talked to at that time of day, I think, is somebody that was serving in Thailand at the time, and uh, uh, you know, I pick up my uh, my iPad to do something, and my finger would hit the uh, call button. The oh, next thing no. I know, I'm talking to somebody in Thailand. It's nighttime there. And yeah, so we had a couple good conversations there. Anyway, um, but other than that, I don't think I've ever called anybody that early in the morning. Um, Hidako's family has this propensity. They're in Okinawa and they call, you know, and it's like five o'clock in the afternoon or something. They'll call and after about 10 minutes of talking to Hidako and Hidako's falling asleep, they say, oh, what time is it there? And they know very well that it's three o'clock in the morning. They have this thing about calling her at the most unbelievable times of the day. But whatever. Anyway, they know what they're doing. They just are, they're keeping their young, their younger sister uh, on her toes is what's that. Okay, 414. Even though my illness was a trial to you, did you not treat me with contempt? You did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Jesus Christ himself. Okay, this is it says the same thing, just differently. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Okay, so hopefully we got enough time. We will get to the verse that I was referring to in the last verse. Okay, 414. There's a dispute between manuscripts as to whether Paul's words actually say my trial or your trial. 
assuming that it is my trial, then he is acknowledging that his weakness and infirmity, which was in his own physical body, was not to be considered by the Galatians as points of rejecting him. They overlooked this failing aspect of his humanity, and they responded in a completely different way than might otherwise be expected. If it is correctly rendered your trial, it doesn't change the overall outcome of the verse, but it would mean that Paul's weakness was actually a trial to the Galatians. He was probably even burdensome to them because of the care that he needed from them. And yet they responded favorably to him, assuming all of the burdens that the afflictions brought about. Either way, the Galatians did not despise or reject, that's his words, did not despise or reject him because of his bodily afflictions. Instead, they received him, as he says, as an angel of God. An angel of God doesn't have such afflictions. Rather, they are heavenly beings and would bring a blessing rather than a trial. Instead of rejecting Paul, they accepted him in a grand manner, as if he were such a heavenly being. You're no you're no trial to us at all. We're going to take care of you, and we're going to make sure that everything's fine. Don't worry about it. They just gave him a very warm welcome. He gave them the gospel. They appreciated it. And you can see how even this is setting them up to show them, listen, your heart was geared towards me and my affliction in grace, and now you're going back under the law. If you just think through what he's saying, and every word he's saying, it's trying to get them to understand their earlier days. You know, when you're under the law, all you're thinking about is pleasing the Lord through your own works. You're not thinking about all the great things that you can do for Christ. You're not thinking about all the great things that, that you can interact with other people with and the fellowship you can have. You know, the law is a burden. That's all it is. It's a bondage. And so you are being robbed of other things. And I'm certain that's why he's adding this particular uh, verse in in the words that he's saying. Anyway, but even more. He adds the superlative nature of his treatment by next stating, even as Christ Jesus, not only an angel of God, but even as Christ Jesus. Their care of Paul was so tender and so affectionate that he looks back on it as worthy of the treatment someone would have afforded even to the Lord himself. Although under a different dispensation and under a different context, the words of Christ Jesus in Matthew 10 are reflected here. Let me take you there really quickly. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's see here, Matthew 10. And, whoops, 7, 8, 9, 10. And he says, oops, one more page. In verse 40, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. I'll go on just because it's, it's still relevant. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. All right, so they received him even as Christ Jesus himself. Finally, this verse shows us the, superior, the superiority of Christ over the angels, a thought which is explicitly stated in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. And when you're reading the book of Hebrews, the main theme, I know Burke's going to call it out, main theme? Better. better than, greater than. Everything about Jesus is better. He's better than the law. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the angels. He's better than this, and he's better than that, or greater than. So in Hebrews 1, verse 14, are they not, speaking of uh, angels, are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister for those who will inherit 
salvation, okay? And he made the whole point all the way through the first chapter speaking about Christ and then angels, Christ and then angels. And he goes through there and says, look at how great Christ is. You've got these angels that people are always speaking about. Ooh, I had an angelic visit today like it was a great thing. Well, imagine having the Lord of creation wash your feet, okay? Life application. How is it that we treat those who carry the message of Christ? Do we treat them like anyone else, overlooking their plight when they're in a state of weakness or need? Paul said to his protege, Timothy, that we are to let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Once again, I typed this a long time ago. This is not, okay, just it's a fair analysis. The Galatians treated Paul this way even before he was considered a spiritual authority. They received him with gladness and then received his message with joy. As believing Christians, let us remember to treat our fellow Christians as worthy of all respect. And sometimes that's hard, I admit it. Also, let us remember to doubly honor those who share their knowledge of Christ with us. Uh, you know, just because somebody becomes a Christian doesn't mean they become, you know, not what they were before. We all carry our idiosyncrasies. We all carry our, you know, pet peeves and the things that we do that irk others. And um, uh, Andy, when I was emailing back and forth with her today, um, you know, she I emailed them to ask how Greg was. And she came back and she said something. I don't know where she heard this, but she said, what was it about dinner in Malaysia that you didn't like? And I, I don't remember if I said it in a class or if I said it, you know, in an offhanded comment or if I said it in a sermon. I don't know. But she asked and I, I said, you know, now some of these people may have been Christians, okay? And they still are today. And if I went there, I'd still be irked by this, okay? When we were in Malaysia, I'll give you three examples of what happened. I typed these to her today. When we first got there, we were... Uh, we rented a place from some Chinese folks. We were in a town called Pataling Jaya, right, right outside of Kuala Lumpur. And so we're in PJ and we wanted to get to know our landlord. And so we invited him for dinner. And I said, um, uh, you know, why don't you come over? And they said, oh, we'd love to, that's wonderful. And they said, what time? And I said, maybe Hidika, one of us said, uh, five o'clock. Might've been six, but I'm just five o'clock, okay. And so Hidako made dinner. We had the house all cleaned. Everything was nice and ready. Great dinner waiting. They never showed up. And so we ate at nine and went to bed. And they showed up at 10 o'clock. We'd already washed the dishes, everything. And they knocked on the door. And we, we said, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we're here for dinner. And we said, it was five o'clock. And they said, oh, well, then we're on time or something like that. And we're like, no kidding. And so they finally, we, we had him come in and Hidako cooked another dinner. I mean, we didn't get done until like two or something or whatever. And I got to go to work in the morning. But so they invited us, you know, they invited us. So we're going to invite them. They invited us and they said, um, would you like come over for dinner? We said, we'd love to. And they, we said, what time? And they said, come over at five. So we thought they knew the, the, the scoop now. And so we went over there and we were right on time. 4.59, I knock on the door. And she comes out about five minutes later and she's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, did we get the wrong day? And they, they, they were wearing old clothes. I mean, like they've been working in the garden and nothing was cooked. 
and they were completely surprised that we were there on time. And we found out after, you know this in Malaysia, I don't care if you say be there at three in the afternoon, if you're there before seven at night, you're there way too early. And I never, never figured out their time schedule. I never figured it out. And so we, we thought, well, we're going to invite our dentist. She was such a nice lady, Padma K. Pillai. That was her name. I still remember it. She's what a wonderful lady. We invited her for dinner and we told her, we're Americans. And when we have dinner, we come at that time. She says, no problem. Five o'clock. She shows up at nine o'clock and we had served dinner for three people. And she came with her entire family, like 12 people. And we're like, what are you doing? And she says, we're here for dinner. I never, I never understand. She's been putting up with this for most of her life, but I never got used to that. In Japan, if you invited somebody over at 4.59, they would be there at 4.59. Their knock would be when the second thing hit. I'm telling you, they're the most precise people. I got along so well in Japan, but I never, and you had that when going to church in the Dominican Republic, didn't you? They're not that bad. Oh, well, yeah, I know, but they'd say church starts at 8, and she'd be there at 8, and she'd be the only one there until 9.30. You know, so I, I don't understand that, but that's the way they operate. And she's shaking her head. She'll testify it's true. So anyway, these some of them may be Christians. And if you go to that country, you can't get irked at them. You just have to live with it. But boy, I don't know. I don't know how anything gets done in that. I, I, nothing. I don't know how I don't know how they even have cars that operate in that country, because, you know, I got to be there at the uh, mechanic at 930 to have my car fixed. And they're not ready to start working until four o'clock. I mean, it's just, oh, it's it's, it's it opens at nine, don't go before 11. No, it's it's it is horrible. It really is. Anyway, so North Carolina is a whole lot like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> then I won't live in North Carolina. If that's the case, I won't live there. Okay. Um, I, you know, I don't even remember where I was now because we've been reading this. Um, yes, uh, they received him with gladness and then received his message with joy as believing. Oh, yes. Okay. 4.15. That's where we are. Okay. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you would have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Okay. This verse kind of gives you a hint what I think the affliction is. It says, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible... You would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. It's very close. Very close translation. Okay. Paul now asks a simple question based on the previous verse. He had just noted that he was received as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. They were overjoyed at Paul's coming and the good news that he bore, telling them of the forgiveness of sin through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But with the coming of the Judaizers, this had changed. These, these false teachers had twisted the gospel. And they had torn the Galatian sense of joy towards Paul away. As I said a minute ago, I mean, when you get into legalism, your joy goes away. Now, I don't want to be too hard on him because I really love the pastor. He died. Oh, it's coming up. Today is the 5th. 7 November of 2004, he died. Pastor Ross. And But he was King James only. He was very legalistic, but he was a good guy. But the church itself, because they were so legalistic, they were nice people, but there was not joy there. You know, the only time there was joy, and I will admit there was one time every month that there was a lot of joy. Anybody guess? 
potluck supper. I'm telling you, they would bring, and everybody, of course, had to outdo everybody else. It was just, and it was a small church, but when you left, you were a big person. It was, wow, that was really amazing. But yes, you lose your joy when you get into legalism. You, you just got to stay away from that. You got to not put yourself up on, you know, all these Christians, and I don't like their music, and so I'm going to put them down. You know, if you don't like their music, don't listen to them, Okay. But don't put other people down that like that music. That's just, you know, music is music. I turn on YouTube. What I do the first thing every day is I turn on Agape FM, which is uh, Israel radio. And I play that until they start playing music I don't like. And it usually doesn't happen. But if it happens, I turn it off and I put on YouTube. And I let YouTube pick the music for me. It just picks whatever. And I'm telling you, unless it's rap, I let it play. I don't care what it is. It just is. I need something in the background not when I'm typing sermons or commentaries, but the rest of the day, I just need something in the background. I don't care what place. It, it makes no difference at all to me. But Agape FM is always very nice. It just, it plays Hebrew music and, you know, it, it's just wonderful. So if you want the uh, link to it, let me know and I'll send you a, uh, I'll send you the link. But, you know, and they got some testimonials on there, usually in English, but it's, most of it is uh, Hebrew music. Anyway, um, Okay, they twisted the gospel. They had torn the Galatian sense of joy away uh, from their joy towards Paul. And so he asks, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? The word what is translated by other texts as where and seems to convey the idea better. Where then was the blessing you enjoyed? They had a sense of joy in Paul, which had now departed. In other words, it is not that joy itself Hang on. It is not that joy itself had been taken from them, just joy in Paul. He was the messenger of the gospel, and they were blessed when he was there. Now, it is as if he had become an enemy to them. This is seen in his next words. He said, For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Paul came to them first, as we saw earlier, because of a physical infirmity. At that time, and upon the reception of the good news, they would then have done anything for him. They were simply overjoyed to have him among them. In order to show the level of love that they felt for him, he reminds them of their willingness to care for him, saying, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. These words can be taken in one of two ways. The first is that this is an idiom showing that they would have given to him even their most precious body parts as an offering, and we do that today. You know, I cut off my right hand for that person, you know, whatever. The eyes are used this way elsewhere in the Bible. The other possibility is that Paul's malady was an, was an affliction of the eyes, and so he was saying that they were so grateful to him that if they could, they would have given him their own good eyes in place of his failing eyes. And what is probable is that both are correct. It is true that the eyes are most precious. It is also true from several other passages in the New Testament that Paul appears to have had an affliction in his eyes. While standing in the same room with the high priest, he claimed he didn't know who he was. He says, oh, I didn't know you were the high priest. And we went through that when we were in the book of Acts, and there were about 10 different ways that that could have been taken. I didn't know he was the high priest, or, you know, just change your tone in that sentence, and you can come up with about 10 different interpretations. I don't remember what the sentence is, but I'll give you an example. I didn't say that I would give you that thing. I didn't say that I would give you that thing, implying that somebody else would. I didn't say that I would give you that thing, okay? It means adamantly I did not. I didn't say I wouldn't give you that thing, implying that I did something else, okay? 
I didn't say that I would give you that thing, meaning somebody else would give it to you. Okay, you can take every word of that sentence and you'll come up with a completely different meaning. And that's what Paul, his intent was when he was talking to the high priest. Okay, so go read that sentence and change the tone in your voice with each, each word of the sentence and you'll come up with a different possibility. So we don't really know what his thought was there. But um, let's see here. Yes, uh, Paul's malady, um, high priest. Yes, he uh, claimed he didn't know who he was. He's guided by others in the book of Acts, a sign that he probably had bad eyes. They guided him everywhere he walked, you know. He never went to a boat alone. He was never off a boat without somebody meeting him. You see this. Just read Paul's life in the book of Acts, and you'll always see he's accompanied by somebody or somebody is there to meet him. Probably he had bad eyes, okay. Such clues point to Paul's eyes as being a source of his affliction, and there are other clues as well. Um, whether as an idiom or as a statement of heartfelt intent, Paul reminds them of the joy they once had for him because of the message he carried. Now that message had been tainted and the joy they held for the messenger had been robbed away. Oh, I skipped, a, I was thinking, I was going to say it, and then I see I skipped a couple other things here. Um, uh, he signed his letters with unusually large letters at the end. He said, this is how I sign all my epistles. Well, people with bad handwriting do that. They sign with really bad big eyes. letters. Oh, yes, thank you. Not bad handwriting, bad eyes. Thank you. Um, it results in bad handwriting. It, it results, yeah, that's right. It results in bad handwriting. Okay, so all of these things clue to, uh, us to uh, Paul's eyes as being the possible source of his affliction. Okay, uh, I'm glad you guys are here to correct me because I, I do this, man. I'll say Peter and I mean Paul, or I'll say up and I mean down, or I'll say left. I'm so dyslexic that I have to actually touch whichever yeah, hand. When, when, when Nick was here. Oh, well, I, I do it all the time. If I don't, and you go left. Left. I have to do that because if not, I'll say right. I mean, and I'll turn right. I just, oh, and you know, it's not just that my eyes do this. They do it all the time. My brain does it. I will think thoughts backwards like when I'm dreaming. It's just terrible. It's just, oh. So anyway, um, I call it mental dyslexia. You've got your, your eyes are bad, but you also have the mental part of it. So yes, I'm screwed up. Okay. Um. <laughs> She's agreeing. Mom just agreed. Okay, life application. People get upset and leave churches over the pettiest of issues. They will throw away years of sound instruction and effort by the pastor over one little slip. They forget that he is merely a human being doing his best, but is still fallible. And they forget that they too are full of failings that he has to deal with, usually at the expense of his own personal life. Now, Having written that after all these years, I can tell you that that's true. I can tell you without any doubt that that is true. You give up your life and your time with your wife and you give up other things. I had somebody that needed help today that used to attend this church and he came in and we, I was going to do something and I did not get that done because he needed help because he knows that I'm in a position where I could help him. Okay, And uh, he doesn't not attend this church for any other reason. It's nothing negative on his part. He just He attended this church because he had to, and I won't say any more. And uh, it was to meet certain requirements. I don't want to say anything bad about him. He's a wonderful person, but he had something happen in his life. And uh, so that's why he attended. But he knows that I could help him with something. And it, there are times where you just don't get time with your wife because of, you know, a phone call that happens right at six o'clock when you're about to eat dinner and it goes on till seven and then you're tired and you don't want to eat anymore and you go to bed, whatever. Anyway, so um, the lesson of the Galatians is one which is still being learned today. And it is a sad one. Okay, verse 416. Wait, wait. Let me get it up so I can follow you because I, I... Oh, okay. Well, I better get it up then. Okay, 16. Go ahead. 
Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Okay, that's almost identical. Instead of by, they say because. Okay, when Paul had visited, yeah, we got a few minutes. When Paul had visited them, we've gone through a lot of verses today. We've normally gone through three verses a day over the past many weeks, but today we're just kind of burning it up. Uh, when Paul had first visited them, they displayed an amazing, wonderful affection for him. This was noted in his words of the previous two verses. Now, however, it is as if he had become an enemy to them. Vincent's word studies notes that the word enemy is given in an active sense, as is shown by the next clause, not passive, an object of hatred, which would have the pronoun in the dative, okay? So they're actively hating him in this. It's not something passive, okay? In other words, it wasn't as if they hated him, but that they looked at him as someone fighting against them. They had been duped by the Judaizers into believing that his gospel message was false, even a heresy. How sad to think that it is they, the ones who so pervert the grace of Christ, who were teaching heresy. And this is something you see all the time. Jim sees this almost every day, okay? People that were saved, and all of a sudden they get into an aberrant sect, and the next thing you know, they're arguing that you are the one that's gone off the deep end, when all you've done from the beginning is preach the grace of Christ. It's, it, do you see that? I mean, have you, you haven't run across that that much. Okay. He sees it every day. I, I see him see it and I don't get involved in it. I just let him, I don't have the time to take care of the battles that he, he wants to he get into. You live, live vicariously through me. Yes. Yes. You're, you're, he's willing to take people on like that. And I just, I, I, you know, I do what Paul says in, uh, what is it to, uh, Timothy, maybe to Titus. He says, warn a divisive man once, warn him a second time and then have nothing to do with them. I'm not here to play scripture tennis. You know, they'll just start lobbing verses totally out of context, and I don't have time for that. So I just follow Paul's rule, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have nothing to do with you. But unfortunately, this is exactly how false teachers and the leaders of aberrant cults work. Think of Jim Jones. I mean, look what he did to those people. They divide and conquer. They find an enemy in every good teacher, and they twist the truth, stating what is incorrect is what is necessary for right living. And we see this in the politics lately as well, haven't we? We've seen it all. You know what happened? I was going to put this in the update, but maybe I won't now. You know what happened? Immediately, immediately after Oregon was declared blue, immediately she called up the National Guard to get rid of Antifa. They've been out there protesting now for months and months and months, and they have done nothing. As soon as it was declared blue, she called them up and said, we've got to get this taken care of. You take, you know, this is this is the same thing in politics happens in religion, and religion happens in politics. But you can see how devious people are, They're, how cunning people are. I'm just taking a political thing, and I'm saying that this is what false teachers will do as well. Exactly. Okay. So they twist the truth, stating what is incorrect is what is necessary for right living. In Paul's case, they warned against him, not because he was a false teacher, but because he told the truth. What is so immensely sad is that unlike the Galatians, we now have the truth of the gospel written down for us. They didn't have that. All they had was Paul's word. But we have this in the word of God. If someone is confused about which teacher is telling the truth, all they need to do is just pick up the book. Just pick it up and read. This is why I say to you, every single time we have a class, it's time for you to go home and study, to read your word. Read it in the morning when you wake up. Read it during the day when you have free time and read it before you go to bed. Read this word and read this word and read this word until you can't read it anymore. And then pick it up and read it some more. 
This is what we do because if you don't do that, you are susceptible. You have no idea which person is telling you the truth and which person is lying. You have no idea. It's very sad. And, you know, and I say this during the update especially because there are a lot of people that do prophecy updates that teach really, really bad doctrine. And I, you know, I don't talk about them so much, but what I do say is that, you know, unless you're reading your Bible or unless you're listening to the Word of God, you have no idea if what they're saying to you is true or not. You're being completely duped. And you probably heard me say that 10 million times. I'm not getting you to come and attend the Superior Word Church. I'm getting you to read the Word of God. You attend where you want to, but read the Word of God. That's, that's where you're going to at least know when you hear something that doesn't sound right. At least can, you know, check it out. Go to the Bible and check it out. Okay, yes, uh, all they need to do is pick up the Bible and read it. The answers are there. But even this approach is called into question. Paul's words are maligned. Sometimes people claim that his words were manipulated by an ancient conspiracy. I've seen people that say that Paul's writings are heretical. They don't belong in the Bible because they have twisted that truth so much they have to say that, okay? And that they are not what he originally wrote. So the Bible is corrupted. We don't have a sure word. That teacher that's telling you that you have to observe the law of Moses knows better than what the Bible, the word of God says. There's nothing to substantiate their claims, but they get people into bondage, they tie them down, and they chain them up, and then they're, they're lost. So, and you know, if you're willing to follow a person, then you're not following God. By some, it is said that his words can only be properly understood when taken from a Jewish perspective. I've seen that one many times as well. By others, it is said that the Greek translation has been corrupted. And on and on go the lies, deceiving people into believing that the law must be adhered to in one form or another. But even Peter warned against this for those who were willing to listen. Let me take you to 2 Peter. One Peter, one Peter five, two Peter, there it is. And then we've got chapter three. And then, yeah, exactly. Three, and I'm going to take you first to uh, 14. And we're going now I'm going to go back a little bit. I'm going to read the whole. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, exactly what we've been talking about here, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. So there you go with that. 2 Peter 3, 14, actually a little longer, but through 16. Life application, are we going to have time for one more or not? Let me check this. Yeah, we'll do one more. Okay, life application. Pick up the Bible and read it for yourself. Accept the truth that God has not allowed his word to be so utterly corrupted that it can no longer be trusted. Stop listening to the Judaizers who are filled with wickedness and lies concerning the grace of God in Christ. Trust Christ and not your own worthless attempt 
at pleasing God through an obsolete law. And that's another thing. You know, they, I don't know anybody that says that the book of Hebrews is corrupted. All the Hebrew roots people, because it says Hebrews, oh, that's, you know. But the book of Hebrews is the one that, as much as anything, dispels their doctrine. I mean, that's why I gave you those verses again today. It is, it is right there if they will just simply pick it up and read it and say, oh, it's obsolete. But you know what? You give it to them, and once again, cognitive dissonance sets in, and they just they don't even see it. They find a reason to not believe what is in black and white right before them. And those verses can be taken no other way. They are very clear and precise. Okay, let me get my Bible, and we'll go to verse 17 here. Hang on one sec. All right. That's what Islam teaches, too. Yeah, that's right. We have a corrupted word. That's exactly, but theirs is the one that's corrupt, and they know that, so, okay, 17. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. Absolutely. They say exclude you instead of alienate, but other than that, it's, it's very close. Okay, we got five minutes. We got to get this done. Paul has been speaking on the same subject throughout the entire epistle. A group of self-serving miscreants that we today call Judaizers, or Hebrew Roots Movement, have come in and perverted the pure gospel which Paul has presented to the Galatians. They had joyfully accepted Paul's words and were adopted into the family of God, having received his spirit in the process, and now things had changed. Once again, they received the spirit. The spirit is given as a guarantee. One current, I'm sorry, um, uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it's given as a guarantee. It is a deposit. It is given by God. God doesn't make mistakes. God would never retract the guarantee that he's done. We could go through four or five logical arguments why salvation is eternal. These people are saved, and that's why Paul calls them brethren. Even though they've departed, they're fallen into a, a, a basically a cult. He does not question their salvation, which is something that we need to remember with that. Okay, so... And the group of self-serving people had arrived on the scene and affected the mind of the Galatians to the point where they were now inserting precepts of the law into their lives instead of relaying, relying on the grace that had saved them in the first place. And so Paul, referring once again to these false teachers, says, they zealously court you. The word is zelao, and it is rightly translated as zealously. There was fervency in their efforts of courting the Galatians, However, their zeal was, as Paul says, for no good. Instead, their goal was that they want to exclude you. In order to bring them into the bondage to their false teaching, they worked to draw them away from the true gospel. Thus, they would be excluded from fellowship with true believers, excluded from further proper doctrine and training by Paul and other apostles, and excluded from rewards for faithful adherence to Christ. Only harm could result from this infection which was brought in by these false teachers. And that takes us right back to chapter 1 where Paul says that if somebody brings in a false gospel, and I don't care if he's an angel from heaven or we ourselves, let him be anathema. Okay, and that's what he's saying about these false teachers. They are anathema. They are under a curse. Instead of building them up and making them zealous for the gospel, for right doctrine, and for the grace of Christ, they courted them that they may be zealous for them. Exactly what a false teacher will do. Come in, be under me. I will teach you everything that's right and you don't need to go out and do anything else. You don't need the Bible. You don't need, you know, whatever. I will take care of you. Paul uses the same word, zelao, in order to show the misguided nature of what had occurred. The false teachers had selfish motivations, just like any cult does. 
the intent was to get hearts and minds off of Christ and the gospel and towards their own twisted and perverted selves. It is unfortunate that some translations use two different words to translate the one word, zalao. In doing so, they miss the contrasting stress of Paul's words of this verse. For example, the King James says, they zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. As you can see, the full force of Paul's intent is diminished through such an unhappy translation. If you have the same word in the same verse, probably Paul is trying to get you to say the same thing when it's translated into whatever language you speak so that you can see he's contrasting right from wrong. Okay, life application. It doesn't take long to recognize an aberrant cult if looked at from objective eyes. They have several common traits, such as claiming exclusive knowledge of the truth, they twist and manipulate scripture for their own agenda. They deride those who would dare question their authority, and so on. Unfortunately, when people lack sound doctrine, they wind up in cults because they had no firm footing on which to stand. Paul's letter is intended to correct their faulty thinking, and we now have it as a part of the full counsel of God. Be sure to read the Bible, study it, and apply its precepts properly to your own life. And we're just on time. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word. And we would certainly pray that whatever was said today is proper and in accord with your word. And once again, if there was anything said that is not right, we would pray that you would exclude it from the minds of the people or have somebody send me something of a correction and we can talk about it and discuss it. But Lord, it would never be our intent to mishandle your precious word. And Lord God, we pray for all of the people we mentioned at the beginning of this service. We pray for uh, the lost in our lives, those people on the list that we have here. And Lord, we also certainly pray for our president today. He's under a great deal of stress. He's having uh, an election robbed away from him, which was certainly won by him. And Lord, we would pray that you would frustrate their efforts. But if it doesn't happen, we understand that you know the end from the beginning, and it's a part of where this world is supposed to go. And if that's the case, then we're not going to allow it to ruin our joy in you. It'll ruin our joy while we're down here in the, uh, in the uh, process of going through these things, but it will not ruin our joy in you and the hope that we have in you. So help us to never forget that truth is that you already are there at the end waiting for us and it's all done and we know that. But we do pray for our president. We ask that you give him wisdom, give him direction, and give him uh, happiness during this difficult time in his life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let me turn this off. It's got to be off right on time, or it causes a problem with uh, 